Hello, I'm your reader, Paula Carezzi, and it's time for our birthdays. Christine Young of Des Moines, happy birthday to you. And Richard J. Cloverdance of Mason City, we wish you the very happiest of birthdays. Ivan Olson of Northwood, many happy returns of the day for you. And Sandra Bomer of Waterloo, happy, happy birthday to you. If today is also your birthday and you didn't hear your name, give us a call so we can be sure to get your birthday on our list. Here's a reminder that our program schedule has changed dramatically so that we can get as much local information to as many listeners as possible. The Fort Dodge Messenger will be read at 7 a.m. Monday through Friday. The Mason City Globe Gazette will be read at 8 a.m. Monday through Friday. Your Des Moines Register will continue to be read from 9 a.m. to noon. The Cedar Rapids Gazette will be read at noon, seven days a week. The Waterloo Cedar Falls Courier will be read at 1 p.m., seven days a week. The Dubuque Telegraph Herald will be read at 2 p.m., Monday through Friday. The Council Bluffs Daily Nonpareil will be read at 3 p.m., Monday through Friday. The Sioux City Journal will be read at 4 p.m., seven days a week. The Ames Tribune will be read at 5 p.m., Monday through Friday. The Midweek Shopping Cart will be read each Wednesday at 9 p.m. We will stay with this schedule until further notice. Let's get back to the news by turning to today's USA Today. We'll begin with five things that USA Today says you need to know on this Tuesday, May 5th, 2020. Trump to visit Arizona mask plant amid push to lift coronavirus restrictions. President Donald Trump will travel to Phoenix on Tuesday, leaving the confines of Washington for the first time in more than a month as the administration begins pushing states to ease coronavirus restrictions that have crippled the U.S. economy. The president will visit a Honeywell aerospace facility that is expanding its production of critical N95 respirator masks to meet the demand for essential workers, according to the White House. The trip to Arizona, both considered battleground states, in November's election comes as Trump has signaled his eagerness for states to begin allowing residents to return to work and reopening schools and businesses. Washington state partially relaxes social distancing measures. Fishing, hunting, and golfing can resume on Tuesday in Washington, at which time people can also return to state parks and other state lands for day trips amid the coronavirus pandemic. However, Governor Jay Inslee said that if the state sees an uptick in infections of the coronavirus or if people don't continue to take safety measures while recreating, the activities could once again be restricted. Other states have already begun to relax social distancing restrictions, plans that often vary by region, state, county, and even city. Saluto Cinco de Mayo! No, it's not Mexico's Independence Day. Cinco de Mayo on Tuesday commemorates the Mexican army's unlikely victory over the French forces of Napoleon III on May 5, 1862, at the Battle of Puebla. For Americans, it's often a time to enjoy Mexican food and a few margaritas. But as many restaurants remain closed for dine-in amid the coronavirus pandemic, Americans might have to celebrate differently this year. Luckily, many are offering ways to perk up your at-home fiesta. Taco Bell's launching at-home taco bars, a $25 spread that feeds up to six and comes with all the ingredients you need to build a taco feast of your own at home. NBA 2K League sets to tip off its eSports season. 
When and if the actual 2019-20 NBA season starts again is unknown, but fans eager for any type of basketball-related action can take some solace with the return of the NBA 2K League on Tuesday. The eSports read fully digital leagues. 23 teams will play games remotely for their local markets, broadcast live on Twitch and YouTube. There's no shortage of action, as four best-of-three matches are scheduled every Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday night over the next six weeks. And thank you, educators. It's Teacher Appreciation Day. From navigating classroom Zoom bombings to supporting students with no Internet connection, this year, teachers across the nation have been stepping up in greater ways due to the coronavirus pandemic. In honor of Tuesday's Teacher Appreciation Day, some restaurants are offering deals from pizza buffets to cell phone plans in order to spread the love. In some cases, a valid teacher ID is required to get a hold of the freebie or discount. And for parents and guardians who have been doubling as teachers at home, check the list for your eligibility. And turning to the top stories in today's USA Today, the first is written by Jorge L. Ortiz, entitled, When Will U.S. Reach 100,000 Deaths? After horrific April, grim milestone could hit in May. In light of a horrific April that saw close to 60,000 Americans lose their lives because of the coronavirus, bringing the national total to more than 63,000, it's fair to ponder whether the U.S. will reach 100,000 deaths. Researchers are hard at work trying to come up with an answer, and there's no clear consensus, but one telling fact stands out. The number of deaths the U.S. endured in April is larger than the combined total during the entire pandemic for the next two countries on the list, Italy and Great Britain, which totaled 54,738 to date. In fairness, their population represents about 40% of the USA's. How much worse will it get in the U.S.? At one point, White House officials projected 100,000 to 240,000 deaths, even with social distancing restrictions. Then they lowered the expected figure considerably. But that position might be shifting. The Trump administration is now projecting that the number of coronavirus deaths will increase to about 3,000 each day by early June, according to a New York Times report Monday that the White House has disputed. The projections, based on modeling by the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention and outlined by the Federal Emergency Management Agency, predict about 200 new cases each day by the end of May, a major increase from about 25,000 cases now, the Times reported. The actual numbers will depend in part on the public response to measures implemented throughout the country, which are starting to get relaxed because of the heavy toll they've taken on the economy. At least 30 states reopened in one form or another by last weekend. Through Monday morning, the widely cited COVID-19 model from the University of Washington's Institute for Health Metrics and Evaluation, IHME, often used as a reference during the White House media briefings, projected 72,433 deaths by August 4th, though with a maximum range of up to 114,228. That changed Monday afternoon when the projection nearly doubled to 134,475 by that same date. The model had never forecast more than 93,000 deaths, but now estimates the U.S. will reach 100,000 by May 21st. The IHME said in a statement on its website that it has switched to a hybrid model. 
quote, this modeling approach involves estimating COVID-19 deaths and infections, as well as viral transmission in multiple stages, the statement said. The IHME model has been accused of being overly optimistic. Others predict the nation will reach 100,000 deaths in the latter part of May. That's the case for the model produced by the Los Alamos National Laboratory, which features detailed state-by-state information that includes one-week and six-week forecasts, as well as situational updates. Yu Yang Gu, a data scientist whose model is one of the nine listed by the CDC website, concurs with the late May estimate for reaching six figures. Gu's COVID-19 projections, which rely on data from Johns Hopkins University to forecast future deaths through a combination of artificial intelligence and a classic infectious disease model, factors in the expected loosening of stay-at-home orders. Gu foresees as many as 161,000 deaths from COVID-19 by August 4th, more than twice as many as the IHME, and trouble ahead for states reopening without knowing whether the virus has been contained. Quote, we believe this will cause the infection rate to increase in those states, leading to a second wave, Gu said. Scientists studying the virus's impact generally agree the confirmed tally of cases, currently over 3.5 million worldwide and approaching 1.2 million in the U.S., falls well short of the actual totals for a disease that can be transmitted by asymptomatic carriers. In addition, determining whether the death rate is on the rise or decline has been a difficult proposition. It can be argued that the peak of the virus hit on April 16th, when the Johns Hopkins Coronavirus Database recorded 4,591 U.S. deaths in a single day. That peak occurred in the same week when New York City reclassified several thousand deaths as coronavirus-related. But the daily death figures have not been steadily declining since then. Last week is an illustration of that. Tuesday's death toll was 1,378, but the next day that total shot back up to 2,096. And on Thursday, it increased again. 2,612 people died on that day. Looking at the numbers through the prism of state death totals presents a worrisome picture of the past few weeks. New Jersey reported a new single-day fatality high of 460 deaths on Thursday, and Massachusetts added 1,000 new deaths in five days as the pandemic peaks in that state. A number of states with the largest increases in COVID-19 cases in the past week have no statewide stay-at-home orders, such as Nebraska and Iowa, which reported a 70 and 86 percent increase, respectively, in new cases per 100,000 residents over the seven days ending on April 29th, according to 24-7 Wall Street. It's also worth noting that death counts fail to take into consideration the number of people who may have perished for reasons indirectly related to COVID-19, such as those whose life-threatening conditions did not get treated because of the health crisis. Data released last week by the CDC indicates several thousand so-called excess deaths not directly attributed to the coronavirus may be linked to it. Quote, this is clearly another important aspect of the pandemic that should be influencing policy decisions, said George Babastasis, a professor of mechanical engineering at MIT who was the co-developer of the school's model. Neither that model, which accounts for infections but not deaths, nor the one developed by the University of Texas at Austin forecasts the day the U.S. may reach 100,000 deaths. The latter, which relies on mobility and mortality data, aims for a narrower focus than others and won't predict 
beyond three weeks ahead. By May 20th, the UT model estimates the U.S. death toll at between 67,938 and 78,797. School researchers are also among those keeping a close eye on developments as states loosen restrictions. Lauren Ansel Myers, a professor of integrative biology and statistics and data sciences who leads the university's COVID-19 modeling consortium, said whether the pandemic resurges will hinge on several factors, the public's efforts to limit contact and take precautions, the effectiveness of programs to test, contact trace and isolate, and attempts to protect high-risk populations. Quote, if COVID-19 does start spreading more quickly, it will take several weeks before we see the impact in the mortality data, Myers said. Since COVID-19 deaths typically occur several weeks after a person is infected, an increase in transmission around May 1 may not be apparent in the mortality data until the end of May, end quote. For anyone thinking the worst was over in April, those are sobering words. And Matthew Perone of the Associated Press reports in USA Today that U.S. reigns in antibody test sales. U.S. regulators on Monday pulled back a decision that allowed scores of coronavirus blood tests to hit the market without first providing proof that they worked. The Food and Drug Administration said it took the action because some sellers have made false claims about the tests and their accuracy. Companies will now have to show that their tests work or risk having them pulled. Under pressure to increase testing options, the FDA in March essentially allowed companies to begin selling tests as long as they notified the agency of their plans and provided disclaimers, including that they were not FDA approved. Quote, however, flexibility never meant we would allow fraud, Dr. Arnand Shah, an FDA deputy commissioner, said in a statement. Quote, we unfortunately see unscrupulous actors marketing fraudulent test kits and using the pandemic as an opportunity to take advantage of Americans, end quote. Blood tests are different from the nasal swab tests used to diagnose COVID-19 infections. Instead, the tests look for blood proteins called antibodies, which the body produces days or weeks after fighting an infection. The revised policy follows weeks of criticism from doctors and members of Congress who said the FDA created a wild west of unregulated tests. And our new culture of wearing masks to protect our fellow citizens is also uh, triggering other, other phenomena. The AP reports that a man who wore a KKK hood at California grocery store may be charged with hate crime, authorities say. Authorities are looking into whether a man who, say, who they say wore a Ku Klux Klan hood while grocery shopping in a San Diego suburb over the weekend could face criminal charges, the sheriff's department said Monday. The unidentified man was photographed with the white hood while pushing a grocery cart at the store in the town of Santee on Saturday, a day after the county required people to wear masks outside to slow the spread of the novel coronavirus, according to the San Diego County Sheriff's Department. Store clerks asked him to take off the hood or leave the store, according to the San Diego Union-Tribune. He removed the tall pointed hood that had two small eye holes cut into it, paid for his groceries, and left. Deputies were not called to the scene, but are investigating to see if he could be charged with a possible hate crime, the department said. Quote, the sheriff's department does not condone hate or any acts of intolerance in our communities, the department said in a news release. Santee Mayor John Minto issued a statement thanking, quote, all who stepped forward to curtail this sad reminder of intolerance. 
Santee, its leaders, and I will not tolerate such behavior, end quote. And Miriam Marini of the Detroit Free Press reports, security guard, father of nine, shot and killed in Michigan after telling customer to put on face mask. Calvin Munerlin, a father of nine, was gunned down after turning a customer away for trying to enter a family dollar in Michigan without a mask, according to authorities. On Monday, Genesee County Prosecutor David Layton charged three suspects in the murder. 45-year-old Charmel Teague, 44-year-old Larry Edward Teague Jr., and 23-year-old Reminia Bishop. Quote, decisions like staying home when we can, wearing a mask when we go to the store, and staying a safe distance from those around us, these should not be political arguments, Layton said. They don't necessitate acts of defiance, and we simply cannot devolve into an us-versus-them mentality, end quote. He added, quote, we really need to make a commitment as a community to doing the things necessary to allow us to stay healthy and turn the page on this crisis altogether. If not for ourselves, we should do this for Calvin Munerlin, who has lost his life needlessly and senselessly. Our officials said Charmel Teague and her daughter went to the family dollar in Flint, Michigan, Friday afternoon. Security footage showed Munerlin and Teague got into a verbal altercation after he told the woman that her daughter needed a face mask to enter the store. Teague began to yell and spit at Munerlin, who asked her to leave the store and instructed a cashier not to serve her. Under Governor Gretchen Whitmer's executive order, everyone must wear a mask in all enclosed public spaces to halt the spread of COVID-19. If customers refuse to comply, businesses can turn them away. The security footage shows the two driving off in a red GMC envoy. The same vehicle returned about 20 minutes later at 2.15 p.m. Two suspects, Larry Teague, Charmel Teague's husband, and Raymania Bishop, her son, entered the store. Larry Teague confronted the security guard about disrespecting his wife, and Bishop fatally shot him in the back of the head, Layton said. The two men then left the store. Munerlin, aged 43, was transported to Hurley Medical Center, where he later was pronounced dead. Munerlin, also known as Duper, leaves behind nine children and his wife, Layton said. A GoFundMe page for Munerlin was created two days ago and has already raised more than $30,000. Quote, Duper was a hardworking father and husband who lost his life while doing his job, securing the place of business, and asking all customers to wear a mask for our own safety as well as others, reads a statement on the page. City Commissioner Bryant Nolden said he knew Munerlin most of his life and would see him training others free of charge. Quote, he was just an all-around good guy. When I found out what had happened to him, it really broke my heart, because I knew what kind of person he was, Nolden said. Quote, this was extremely senseless over a mask. We need to stop the senseless violence in our community. This was totally uncalled for. He didn't bother a soul. All he wanted to do was take care of his family, and he always had his kids with him. This is a real loss for this community, and really it's a big loss for me as an individual. End quote. Both suspects are still at large and are considered armed and dangerous, Layton said. Charmel Teague is in custody and awaiting arrangement, arraignment charges. In judicial news, Richard Wolf of USA Today reports no hang-ups to court's phone session. The Supreme Court convened by telephone Monday for the, first, for the world to hear a step into the 21st century prompted by a global pandemic. For the first time in its 230-year history, 
the High Court offered a live audio stream of an oral argument going far beyond its usual protocol and giving advocates of greater transparency hope it will become a trend. To begin, two weeks of telephonic oral arguments necessitated by the court's inability to pack its courtroom during the coronavirus pandemic, the justices selected a rather mundane and technical case. Can the, can the hotel reservation website booking.com trademark its name? Within minutes, it became clear this would not be a typical debate. Associate Justice Clarence Thomas, who almost never asks questions in open court, had queries for both sides. It also wasn't the usual case because the lawyers for both sides were women, who make up only a small percentage of the court's advocates. Veteran appellate attorney Lisa Blatt, who has argued more cases there, 39, than any other woman, opposed Assistant Solicitor General Erica Ross. This time, though, Blatt was in her dining room and Ross in her government office. For decades, the court has ignored most of the technological and transparency advancements adopted by other branches of government. Even as lower federal and state courts began live-streaming and broadcasting sessions for public consumption, the highest court in the land remained cloistered. Not only was live audio shunned, but it was big news in legal cir circles a decade ago when the justices agreed to release recordings of their oral arguments once a week rather than once a year. The coronavirus pandemic, however, has imposed social distancing imperatives on a court whose average age is 67, putting most justices in the risk category for COVID-19. It last heard oral argument inside the courtroom March 4th. Two months of scheduled oral arguments were postponed, and ultimately the court scheduled half of them for the next two weeks. The rest were pushed to the court's next term, beginning in October. It turned out that putting nine justices and two attorneys on a live broadcast was no big deal. Supreme Court Marshal Pamela Talkin's tradition, no cry of oye, 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 at 10.01 a.m., started things off. Chief Justice John Roberts called on Ross to begin and kept a tight hold on the clock. Quote, remind me why they haven't been doing this all along, asked Gabe Roth, executive director of the advocacy group Fix the Court. Quote, the days of restricting the court's proceedings to VIPs, the press, and a few dozen members of the public are over, Roth said. Now that we know with certainty that the live audio does not impair its functioning, there's no reason for the court to return to its outmoded policy of weeks-end audio releases once we're past the pandemic, end quote. It was a good test run for the court, which will hear nine more cases by phone over the next nine days. By far, the more, most controversial will be two cases May 12th, when President Donald Trump's lawyers seek to keep his tax returns and records from investigators and New York prosecutors. In climate news, Doyle Rice of USA Today reports on a study that has found billions will face unlivable heat in 50 years. If global warming continues unchecked, the heat that's coming later this century in some parts of the world will bring so-called nearly unlivable conditions for billions of people, a study released Monday said. In fact, the authors predict that by 2070, up to 2.3 billion people are likely to live in climate conditions that are, quote, warmer than conditions deemed suitable for human life to flourish, end quote. The study warned that unless greenhouse gas emissions are curtailed, annual temperatures will rise beyond the climate niche in which humans have thrived for three for 6,000 years. That so-called niche is equivalent to average yearly temperatures of roughly 52 to 59 degrees Fahrenheit. Quote, we show that in a business 
as usual climate changing scenario, the geographical position of this temperature niche is projected to shift more over the coming 50 years than it has moved in the past 6,000 years, the study warned. Temperatures over the next few decades are projected to increase rapidly as a result of human greenhouse gas emissions. And in USA's Today's Nation and World Watch, Senate Secretary says possible Reid report can't be released. The Secretary of Senate has declined Joe Biden's request to release any potential documents pertaining to an allegation of sexual assault against him from a former Senate staffer, citing confidential re confidentiality requirements under the law. The Secretary of the Senate told the Democratic presidential candidate's legal counsel in an email that, quote, based on the law's strict confidentiality requirements, end quote, the Senate legal counsel has advised that the secretary, quote, has no discretion to disclose any such information, end quote. And 29 soldiers are getting Purple Hearts for brain injuries in Iranian attack. Six Army soldiers who were injured in a ballistic missile attack in Iraq in January have been awarded Purple Hearts, and 23 others have been approved for the award and will get them later this week, U.S. Central Command said Monday. About 110 U.S. service members were diagnosed with traumatic brain injuries after the Iranian ballistic missile attack at Al-Assad Air Base in Iraq on January 8th. Initially, commanders and President Donald Trump said there were no injuries during the attack. And Johnson & Johnson settles West Virginia pelvic mesh lawsuit. West Virginia has reached a $3.9 million settlement with Johnson & Johnson in a lawsuit over the company's marketing of a surgical mess mesh used to treat pelvic conditions in women, State Attorney General Patrick Morrissey announced Monday. The Federal Food and Drug Administration stopped sales of the synthetic mesh in April 2019 after years of injury reports as well as tens of thousands of lawsuits from women who said they had bleeding, severe pain, and infection from the products, also called transvaginal mesh. And in WikiLeaks news, London court delays Assange extradition hearing. WikiLeaks says its founder, Julian Assange, will have to wait at least until September before a British judge will hear a U.S. request for his extradition. Assange, who faces espionage charges over the activities of WikiLeaks, is in Belmarsh Prison in London. Kristen Raffinson, WikiLeaks editor-in-chief, said Monday that it was, quote, completely unacceptable, end quote, that Assange has to spend another four months and perhaps longer in prison. By the time a hearing begins in September, Assange will have spent a year incarcerated. And another top story in USA Today on news of the coronavirus pandemic, Marissa Kwiatkowski and Tricia L. Nadoli report feds consider relaxing nursing home controls. The federal government is considering rolling back infection control requirements in U.S. nursing homes, even as the long-term care industry's residents and workers are overwhelmed by the coronavirus. A rule proposed last year by the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services, CMS, would modify the amount of time an infection preventionist must devote to a facility from at least part-time to, quote, sufficient time, an undefined term that lets the facility decide how much time should be spent. The regulation has not been finalized, but CMS last week defended its proposal, saying it aims to reduce regulatory burden and strengthen infection control. Opponents of the change said the rule could leave nursing home residents more vulnerable to infection. They expressed concern, especially given the devastation COVID-19 has caused within long-term care facilities. 
quote, it makes no sense at all, prior to pandemic, but more so now during a pandemic, to roll back any of the necessary infection and control requirements and the federal regulations, said Lindsay Heckler, a supervising attorney at the Center for Elder Law and Justice, a civil legal services agency in Buffalo, New York. Quote, they should be strengthening these infection and control requirements, end quote. CMS has acknowledged that infection, quote, is the leading cause of morbidity and mortality in the nation's 15,600 nursing homes. In its proposed rule, the agency said 1.6 million to 3.8 million infections occur each year in these facilities, with almost 388,000 deaths attributed to infections. The coronavirus has put a spotlight on the problem. More than 16,000 long-term care residents and staff have died of COVID-19, according to a USA Today analysis of government data. And nearly 97,000 residents and staff have tested positive for the virus. Those figures are an undercount because testing has been limited and many states have not released full data. CMS told USA Today its rule would allow facilities to determine for themselves the time needed for infection prevention and go above part-time when warranted. Quote, this is a person-centered approach to care and would allow CMS to hold facilities accountable by having the infection preventionist on site full-time, especially in times of an outbreak, the agency said in a statement. The changes were proposed in July, part of an effort by the Trump administration to reduce regulations for nursing home providers and suppliers. In addition to modifying the infection preventionist requirement, the proposed rule would reduce the need for facility-wide assessment from once a year to every other year and allow certain facilities to disregard a requirement that caps residents at two per room. CMS said the changes would reform, quote, unnecessary, obsolete, or excessively burdensome, end quote, requirements. CMS said the proposal is still under review. There were 1,731 comments on the rule, from nursing home owners to advocates to residents and their family members when the period for public input closed in September. Quote, too many people have died and too many have suffered, Alice Head, a former director of the National Ombudsman Center, wrote in a comment posted September 24th. Quote, minimizing the requirements of the infection preventionist when we know infections can be prevented and addressed will result in even more deaths and suffering, end quote. Head, who spent 30 years as an advocate for nursing home patients, called the proposal, quote, a slap in the face of residents who are more frail than any time in our long-term care history, end quote. Experts say COVID-19's devastating effect on people in long-term care is the result of a complex mix of factors, including the characteristics of the virus, vulnerability of older adults and those with underlying conditions, staffing levels, and national availability of testing and personal protective equipment. For some, the virus's effect on nursing homes has renewed their concerns about the proposed rule. Quote, that softening of that rule, I think, in retrospect, is exactly the wrong thing, said Christopher Laxton, executive director of the Society for Post-Acute and Long-Term Care Medicine. Laxton, whose association represents about 5,500 medical professionals, last year offered tepid support of the change, writing that his group didn't object to the new language, but that both terms, quote, may be confusing and difficult to define, end quote. He wrote that the amount of time spent on infection prevention should be based on real-life factors, such as the facility's risk assessment, seasonal changes, and the presence of outbreaks. In an interview last week, 
he said it is, quote, a different world than we first commented on that proposal, end quote. Quote, at this point, sufficient time for an infection control preventionist in a building means full time, he said, and it means dedicated to a single building and being there every day. That's what sufficient means in this context. It may not mean that outside of a COVID pandemic, but it certainly means it now, end quote. Within the industry, some are less convinced that leaving the rule as is, or even strengthening it, would make a meaningful difference in infection control. Quote, sometimes regulation hinders us from putting resources where we know they need to be, said Dr. Gregory Johnson, chief medical officer of the Evangelical Lutheran Good Samaritan Society, the nation's largest not-for-profit provider of long-term care and senior services. He noted only a small portion of the facility-wide assessment, which the proposed regulations would require to be done every other year rather than annually, focuses on infection control. The work that goes into what can, can, be, can become a 300-page document is, quote, colossal, he said, and there are other regulations that address infection control. Too often, Johnson said, the public hears only about the nursing homes that are so-called bad apples. Quote, there are a whole lot of people out there in this business who are doing it because of a deep care and a deep commitment to mission, he said. Now let's turn to the opinion section from today's Des Moines Register. We begin with an opinion written by Taiyu Yang and Jean K. Johnston, titled, Honor Immigrants on COVID-19 Frontlines by Helping Their Families Stay Here. We have been forced by COVID-19 to dramatically change everything, including our definition of who our heroes are. In addition to the armed services personnel and first responders, heroes now include frontline soldiers in this war against the so-called invisible enemy, as President Donald Trump described COVID-19. Healthcare soldiers are applauded and honored every night at 7 p.m. in New York City and elsewhere. Here in Iowa, we have increased appreciation for those who take care of our parents and grandparents in our nursing homes, some of the hottest infection spots. The latest additions to the honorees are our meatpacking plant workers. We have come to a somewhat belated realization of how essential these workers are in those plants in Iowa. Again, some of the worst hit hotspots. Honor is rightly due to these new American heroes. But what if they are not Americans? In fact, Many of these heroes are not Americans, and many of them do not have a path to permanent residency and citizenship. This, we believe, is a crucial issue to which our thoughts must turn. For anyone who visits an Iowa meat processing plant, one can readily observe that a high percentage of workers are people of color. This is in contrast to Iowa's predominantly white, over 90% population. For anyone who visits his or her loved ones in a nursing facility, a similar disparity is present. The packing plants in Perry, Eagle Grove, Marshalltown, Tama, Columbus Junction, Waterloo, and Sioux City represent our client base for over 25 years in our immigration law practice. We have intimate knowledge of these hardworking, wonderful people. We know the heartaches and hardships suffered by them because they cannot become permanent residents and citizens because of the barriers placed in their path. These barriers have become much higher and rougher since Trump became president. These new heroes are temporary protected status TPS recipients. They are so-called dreamers on deferred action for childhood arrivals, DACA status. They are cancellation of removal, COR appellants. They are asylum seekers awaiting adjudication. And they are contractees to agricultural producers. 
we have ended up in a system in which it nearly a million dreamers are facing imminent deportation simply because that is what Trump decreed. We have ended up in a system in which many asylum seekers who are escaping violence and domestic abuse are mired hopelessly because former Attorney General Jeff Sessions changed the rules to require that they must legally show that their home countries, quote, condone the violence and abuse. Honor is due to these heroes, but is there a reasonable way to honor them? We believe there is. For anyone who looks at our volunteer military personnel, she or he realizes that a disproportion of them are also people of color. One paying closer attention knows a substantial number of them are daughters and sons of undocumented immigrants and or documented TPS, COR, and others described above. The pro-immigration program Parole in Place, or PIP, is a few years old. Under PIP, an American citizen's soldier's family members can petition to remain in the country. Some Iowans have applied for the PIP benefit, thanks in part to some forward-thinking recruiters in the Iowa National Guard. Why not a similar program for the new heroes? The honor is due to those frontline soldiers in the war against COVID-19. Again, this opinion is written by Taiyu Yang and Jean K. Johnson, who are lawyers in Des Moines. Turning to today's letters to the editor in the register, Tracy Creason of Des Moines writes, Abortion, a right, even amid crisis. Everyone has the right to essential health care, including surgical abortions during this global pandemic. I want to thank Planned Parenthood, the ACLU of Iowa, and Emma Goldman Clinic for continuing to fight for Iowans' right to health care. They fought the threat to Iowans' access to safe and legal abortions after Governor Kim Reynolds deemed them non-essential and emerged with an agreement restoring access to surgical abortion care. Leading medical organizations, including the American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists and the American Board of Obstetrics and Gynecology, have reinforced that abortion is time-sensitive and cannot be delayed, saying the consequences of being unable to obtain an abortion profoundly impact a person's life, health, and well-being. For a body of government to make a decision on the rights of women, her body, and what should be private medical decisions is unbelievable. Thanks to the leadership of Planned Parenthood, the ACLU of Iowa, and the Emil Golden Clinic, Iowans no longer have to be distracted by a political fight during a pandemic. Signed, Tracy Creason of Des Moines. And Ray Mailer of Polk City writes, Iowans must look after own water. People can move to Iowa if they want and need our water. We see that again. For-profit corporation Patterson Sand Company wants to receive a permit to sell precious Iowa groundwater to drought-stricken western states. Why is it that citizens in Des Moines should be drinking Gray River water and yet our officials are sitting down for talks about selling our public freshwater aquifer assets. We allow Iowa farmers to install more farm tile every year so rainwater will run to the Gulf and not deep soak our, to our aquifer. What will Iowa do when we get hit with a drought and livestock producers are competing with families for water rights? Will citizens be limited to drinking gray water from the rivers while the ethanol industry and livestock producers require clean water for production? Patterson is so bold that it has even requested that the Iowa Department of Natural Resources waive its requirement to show where the water will go or how our drinking water will be used. There should be no profit-taking from critical public resources. Signed, Ray Mailer of Polk City. Today's register also includes a guest column by Kelly Garcia, who is director of the Iowa Department of Human Services. Her column is titled, Thanks, Iowa DHS Workers, for Rising to the Challenge. 
Right now, there are so many things that are hard to believe. It's hard to believe we're in the midst of a global pandemic. It's hard to believe how much things have changed incredibly quickly. It's hard to believe I've only been the Iowa Department of Human Services director for six months. What is not hard to believe is how our team at DHS has stepped up during this public health emergency. In my short time in the great state of Iowa, I have seen our team do incredible things. In honor of Public Service Recognition Week, I want to take a moment to talk about hashtag Team DHS and their unwavering dedication to those we serve. The DHS mission is to help Iowans achieve healthy, safe, stable, and self-sufficient lives through the programs and services we provide. To accomplish this mission in typical times, our team wakes up every day to do difficult work. Our frontline staff often work holidays, evenings, and weekends, sacrificing time with their own families to serve others. Our team members hear difficult stories, make tough decisions, and assist families when they are at their most vulnerable. Their jobs are tough under normal circumstances. Navigating a global pandemic has challenged everything we do, but the work has not stopped because the work cannot stop. Iowans need us now more than ever. COVID-19 impacts the way social workers support families. It impacts the way facilities support and protect the individuals we serve. It impacts the mental health of countless Iowans. It impacts the needs of Medicaid members and Iowans receiving other assistance. As an agency affected from top to bottom, I'm proud to share our collective response effort. The Medicaid and adult children and family services teams kicked into high gear and set forth waivers that will truly help those most in need, ensuring access to medical care, food, and economic assistance. Our income maintenance workers stand ready to assist those families who have questions or find themselves now in need of supports. DHS went from an agency with no telecommute policy to one deploying more than 2,000 people to work from home. Our IT team stepped in to help disassemble and lift computers for those team members who couldn't. Our fiscal team shifted paper approval processes to electronic streamlined processes to assist our new telecommute capabilities and continues to source supplies to meet our entire system's personal protective equipment need. We've even been able to help some of our partners out in many out in the community obtain PPE. And many, many team members have stepped into new roles when asked because there is a need. If this isn't teamwork, I don't know what is. We know there is more to come, and our response effort must pivot on a dime. So to my team, thank you for stepping up and leaning in. And to my fellow Iowans, I ask you to join me in thanking all of our public servants and essential workforce during Public Service Recognition Week this week. We're asking individuals whose lives have been positively affected by one of our team members to reach out to them directly with an email or video message to thank them. Notes directly to DHS team members are a really impactful way to personally show gratitude. This week, we'll also be encouraging people to thank those in public service using the hashtags hashtag PSRW and hashtag Team DHS. The bravery, grace, and sacrifice our team shows every day are what true public service looks like. From one very proud DHS team member to her more than 4,100 colleagues, thank you. Public service is indeed a noble calling. Again, this column is written by Kelly Garcia, who is director of the Iowa Department of Human Services. And turning to the opinion section in today's USA Today, we have an editorial written by the editorial board of USA Today titled, Stop Politicizing and Start Fixing the Postal Service. 
The United States Postal Service is in dire financial condition. It is seeking $75 billion in cash, grants, and loans. But President Donald Trump is threatening to withhold needed aid in an effort to browbeat the Postal Service into raising rates on package deliveries. Trump has been gnawing on this bone since taking office because Amazon's CEO, Jeff Bezos, is also the owner of the Washington Post, which has been known to publish articles that displease the president. Now the coronavirus and the Postal Service's financial distress have given Trump new reason to pick it up again. He recently said that he would block any coronavirus-related aid to the USPS unless it hikes its package rates fourfold or more. Let's make three things clear here. First, any idea that the Postal Service would be allowed to default later this year is insane. Despite the advent of the Internet and email, it still processes about 182 million first-class items every day. Many of them are bills and bill payments. The service is vital to our economy and to our democracy, as much of the country is expected to vote by mail this year because of the pandemic. Second, the rates the USPS charges should be set by the USPS, not by politicians trying to settle scores. If there is one hallmark of this administration, it is the pulling of levers to do the president's political dirty work. Prime examples include the Ukraine shakedown that led to Trump's impeachment in the House and a capricious effort to block AT&T's merger with CNN parent company Time Warner. Third, the Postal Service's financial woes have little or nothing to do with package delivery rates. The main reason the service is in a hole is a 2006 law that places far greater pension funding obligations on it than those faced by competitors such as UPS and FedEx. Ever since that law passed, the Postal Service has been running huge deficits. The other main problem at the Postal Service is that thanks to email, social media, and a host of other ways to communicate digitally, mail volume is down significantly. The coronavirus has made things even worse. But Congress has stuck its head in the sand rather than addressing the problem. The cost-saving options are familiar. Numerous underutilized post offices could be closed. Saturday delivery could be ended. House-to-house -house delivery could be replaced with mailbox clusters spaced out at appropriate distances. Many new neighborhoods are already configured this way. These are among the issues Congress and President Trump should focus on, not petty political vendettas. This editorial and all USA Today editorial opinions are decided by its editorial board, separate from the news staff. The USA Today editorial also includes an opposing view written by Romina Baccia titled, USPS Needs Major Reforms, Not a Bailout. The U.S. Postal Service is approaching bankruptcy following 13 consecutive years of multi-billion dollar deficits. Instead of a bailout, USPS needs structural reforms to return to solvency and to operate competitively in the digital age. Setting the Postal Service loose to become its own private entity carries the greatest promise for sustainable and effective operations as successful privatizations in countries such as the United Kingdom and Germany demonstrate. USPS was on the road to financial collapse long before the COVID-19 pandemic. Its operations haven't adapted to changing consumer preferences, and Congress carries much of the blame. Even though USPS is supposed to operate as a self-sustaining entity, lawmakers have politicized USPS rather than allowing it to manage itself. President Donald Trump has rightfully opposed a no-strings-attached bailout for USPS, demanding that any federal aid come with conditions aimed at stopping the financial bleeding. Indeed, 
a bailout would be ineffective, an ineffective band-aid on a gushing wound, fixing nothing. Its problems result from decades of congressional micromanagement and unsustainable spending. Foremost among these costs, the Postal Service has promised excessive retirement benefits that are unaffordable in light of actual revenue. Congress also forces USPS to maintain unnecessary service requirements despite the rise of digital communication. As a result, postal workers deliver primarily junk mail to households six days each week. The service also suffers from inefficient asset management, such as maintaining branches with minimal foot traffic. Pricing practices pertaining to both letters and packages do not fully reflect operational costs. While privatization offers the greatest potential for the Postal Service's future, Congress can make reforms short of that ideal. The success of postal reform hinges on phasing out the universal service obligation and granting USPS flexibility to streamline its services to reduce costs. Compensation reforms are also critical to protect taxpayers against unfunded obligations. One thing is clear. Unconditional bailouts must be a non-starter. This is written by Romina Baccia, who is director of the Grover M. Herman Center for the Federal Budget at the Heritage Foundation. Today's USA Today opinion section also includes an opinion written by Mirtha Santana, titled, Reagan gave my father path to citizenship. Immigrants fighting pandemic deserve the same. The coronavirus didn't kill my father, but it kept me from saying goodbye. Perfecto Santana died of organ failure among strangers at Woodhill Hospital in the early morning on April 10th. Social distancing rules kept my family from his bedside when he passed. But COVID-19 won't keep me from telling you about who he was and what he meant not only to my family, but to this country, especially now that President Trump has issued a temporary ban on green cards for most immigrants as part of the government's coronavirus prevention plan. His mother named him Perfecto. His siblings called him Perfo. His friends back home called him Professor. My mom called him Moore, and I simply called him Pape. I know I'm a bit biased, but my father was a great American, and in these fractured United States, during this terrifying global emergency, you all need to know about men and women like my father. Not only do they love this country fiercely, they're proving it yet again while being on the front lines of the coronavirus pandemic. Now more than ever, while we battle the coronavirus, we depend on immigrants to do the jobs many Americans do not want to do. They understand the dangers of the virus, but many do not have the luxury of working from home. They still expose themselves to COVID-19 to perform low-wage jobs that are essential to the survival of this country. The kind of jobs Poppy did for decades after he migrated from the Dominican Republic to the United States in the early 1980s. And yes, he came here illegally. He would always smile so broadly whenever he told the story of his journey here. Quote, when I arrived at JFK, I went through a door marked with the word exit, he would say, and then pause for maximum effect. Even after hearing the story dozens of times, we would patiently wait for the punchline. You know, because success, in Spanish, is exito. Every time we would laugh as if it were the first time he said it. Poppy meant to say that he was just walking into success. To my dad, just like to many other immigrants, this country means success. It means the ability to give their families a better life. An estimated 11 million undocumented immigrants live in the United States. 
undocumented immigrants and green card holders farm our land, build our homes, clean our houses, care for our children, and stock our supermarket shelves. So why not design a fair, clear, humane path to legal residency? After all, these immigrants have proven themselves to be contributing members of society. Some would say that it does not happen because of a twisted political ideology, greed, and racism. But I believe in the higher ideals of this country, those taught to me by my father. America welcomes everyone because the pie is large enough and we all have the chance to succeed. Today, Queens, New York, the most immigrant-rich area in the United States, is being called the epicenter of the epicenter for the spread of COVID-19 in America. Queens is the hardest-hit borough in New York City, with hundreds of deaths. The borough of Brooklyn, which my nonprofit, Rise Borough Community Partnership, calls home, is not far behind. Data shows that Hispanics in New York City are disproportionately affected by the virus. This is neither a co coincidence nor a surprise. Meanwhile, even though many undocumented immigrants pay income taxes, they struggle to get proper health care, and they will not even receive the $1,200 allocation from the Coronavirus Aid, Relief, Economic Security Act. When my dad arrived in this country, he went from being a respected teacher to a delivery guy, a factory worker, and a dishwasher. He often held three jobs simultaneously. Dishwashing was the worst. He used to say he thought his fingers were going to melt out of his hands, but he did it gladly. He knew that it was going to pay off. After all, this is the land of opportunity, right? His opportunity came in the form of the Immigration Reform and Control Act of 1986. After years of being afraid of encountering immigration officers, years of being away from his family, years of low-wage jobs, finally he had a chance. In 1986, President Ronald Reagan signed IRCA into law. A friend told me once, you live in the United States because of a Republican president. Perfecto Santana was one of 2.7 million undocumented immigrants who became legal residents within 18 months of the law being passed, and this law precipitated a series of fortunate events for him. Within a few years, my dad improved his English, graduated with a bachelor's degree, got his wife and three children a green card, and later became a U.S. citizen and a teacher. My research shows he was not alone. Many others who obtained legal residency through IRCA obtained better jobs. His three children did well, too. My brother enlisted in the Navy to defend, quote, his country after the attacks of 2001 and made a career of it. My sister built a career in corporate banking and later became an entrepreneur, a privilege my father never dreamed of having. I am an executive in a New York nonprofit. All of this happened because of the political will of a few and the support of many brave Americans who understood that this country is rich enough, great enough, and generous enough to welcome immigrants. My dad is now gone, and I will miss watching him study math at his kitchen table. I will miss his spontaneous declamation of poems during family functions. I will miss his ceaseless need to write everything down, everything. But I will see him in the faces of those stacking supermarket shelves, delivering meals, cleaning restrooms in health facilities, and driving taxis. I also see him in the young men and women whose ambitions gleam clearly on their faces. When we talked about his wishes after his death, he would say that he wanted his body to be buried in the Dominican Republic. That wasn't an option, another cruel consequence of COVID-19. He was buried in New York, in his adoptive country, which he gave so much to, and which in return gave even more to him. 
This opinion was written by Mirtha Santana, who was Vice President of Empowerment for Rise Borough Community Partnership in Brooklyn, New York. And that's it for our second hour of The Register on IRIS. We're so glad to have you listening. I'm your reader, Paula Carezzi. Coming up next, obituaries from the Des Moines Register.